you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And we're going to read uh, the whole chapter together this morning. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, 
for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of God to us this morning. Lord, as we open your word once again, we just ask for your help. God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. God, help us as you open up deep wounds, as you expose the deep sickness of sin this morning. God, I pray that you'd give us humble hearts that are ready to turn and run towards your grace, that are ready to repent and run back into your loving, fatherly arms this morning. God, please, please help us not to harden our hearts. Please help us not to put out a stiff arm towards your Savior. Lord, we love you. We are totally and completely dependent upon you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship this morning. Amen. One of the things that I find most challenging when it comes to health issues is that sometimes one of the hardest parts is getting the diagnosis right. Uh, Google is great for a lot of things. But it's also a great way to misdiagnose yourself and to completely freak yourself out. If you've ever gone on there and typed in some of your symptoms, you know what I'm talking about. You can completely uh, freak yourself out pretty quickly. Uh, parents in the room, I'm sure that there are times where, as you were raising your kids that you told them that everything was okay when in fact everything was not okay. Um, I'm sure there were also times when you completely freaked out and actually nothing was wrong with your child at all. Uh, we know that, that trying to, to, to treat a misdiagnosis can be a dangerous thing, right? Do the wrong thing and you might die. Don't do anything at all and you'll definitely die. I uh, was thinking about it and I, I was thinking about how nice it would be if our bodies were maybe like computers or cars or something like that, where we could just go into the doctor and they would just you know, plug, a, plug a machine and doo -doo -doo -doo, pop, out pops like the right diagnosis and they know exactly what's wrong with us. But we know that's not exactly how life works. Well, this has to be one of the biggest reasons that genuine Christians who should be filled with joy live downcast lives. And I think it has to be one of the biggest reasons that many, many people leave dissatisfied with Christianity. And it's this, it's that so many of us have misdiagnosed ourselves. So many of us haven't actually gone deep enough down to the root of the problem and so we can't go down deep enough with God's solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son 
his one and only son, into a lost and dying world to save sinners. The gospel is the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death, and then he rose from the grave in order to save sinners. But we think, okay, well, what does that have to do with my life? How does that help me with with my problems? How does that actually fix the problems that I see in the world all around me? And because we misdiagnose ourselves, we can't possibly see how the gospel could be an appropriate solution. Our self-diagnosis typically is only surface level, maybe at the, the point of education or maybe at the point of our environment. Maybe, maybe we think the real problem has to do with uh, the, the political world that we live in, or maybe it's just that we just have bad habits. And so when we treat ourselves, we think, I just need to learn some information. Or I just need to change my environment. Or we just need to get the right person in office. Or I just need to start making better decisions. But that is the difference between Christianity and self-help. And I think we need to be aware of something today. That I think one of the biggest problems with American Christianity is that we've actually adopted self-help and injected some Christian language into it and called it gospel But that's never, ever been able to save anyone. It never could. As we've been working through this Gospel of Mark, this has been really fun. I hope you guys are having fun working through this book. I mean, this has just been so cool to see Jesus in all of his glory, just going around loving and healing people. But as we've been working through this this Gospel, we've seen Jesus interact with all sorts of hopeless and desperate people. And one of the ways that Jesus wants us to understand him is as a physician, as a doctor. He said this, and this was back in chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So today, in Mark chapter 7, we're going to get the opportunity, almost like to watch this great physician, to watch Jesus as a physician at work. But this is the hard thing. The hard thing is that anytime you go to the doctor... There's always a chance that you're going to hear some bad news. There's always a chance that they're going, to, they're going to tell you that something's wrong. And really, before you can get fixed, before you can get healed, you have to come to grips with, in honesty with what's actually wrong with you. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Mark chapter 7. So with that in mind, our first of four steps in healing, hypocrisy, Jesus exposes us. Hypocrisy, Jesus exposes us. Uh, Where we left off last week at the end of chapter 6, Jesus was there with his disciples, and they were healing people in the marketplaces. And that's where the drama picks up. You'll hear that word, marketplaces, as we jump in to chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 now. Let's read it again. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the disciples and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay, so who are the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a a group of conservative Jews Uh, They believed in God, they believed in God's law, and they took God's law very seriously. They were the kind of people who actually thought through how their faith affected every single area of their life, and we can commend them for this. 
But their basic mode of operation, the basic way that they saw life, was through uh, that, that their uh, devotion to God and, and their religion towards God was one of separation. It was one of keeping cleanliness and distance from the world. And that's where we see the question come in verse 5. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, talking about Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So this separated way of life for the Pharisees was, was a national identity, it was a familial identity. It was absolutely ingrained in every single part of their world. And so they couldn't imagine why Jesus and his disciples wouldn't want to join them. Why would Jesus and his disciples not want to join them in keeping separation from the world, in keeping them, their hands clean from all that nasty and dirty stuff out there? Now, I think it might be uh, easy for us to write the, the Pharisees off as crazy, but before we go and, and write them off as crazy, I think we need to, to see something. We need to maybe take a little self-inventory. Because the spirit of the Pharisee is always alive and well at every time and at every place, as long as there will be time and, time and place before Jesus returns. So uh, I'm sure that you guys, most of you guys in here, maybe you heard Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, he's got that funny bit about, um, you, know, you know, you might be a redneck if. Uh, well, we're going to play a little game this morning. And we're going to play a little game that, 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 that's called, You Might Be a Pharisee If, okay? And this is going to be, I promise this is going to be a little painful, right? You might be a Pharisee if. You might be a Pharisee if you are constantly watching and questioning other people's lives, especially their religious life. You might be a Pharisee if you think that the best way to live the Christian life is to separate yourself from all the bad people in the world. You might be a Pharisee if you wonder why God wasn't more specific in his law so that you take it upon yourself to add things to his law that are your own life standards, like political affiliation or choice of dress and music style or size or cleanliness of a living space or a car or decisions about how to spend your Sunday afternoon or your money or you know, that sort of thing. Um, Sorry that wasn't as funny as <laughs> you might be a redneck if, right? This is a, it's kind of a painful game to play. That maybe we're actually a little bit more like them than, than we like to admit. And so look, let's look at how Jesus responds in verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So rather than even answering the Pharisees' question in chapter 5, which is we've seen Jesus do over and over and over again, Jesus just quickly, bluntly, and radically exposes the hypocrisy in the hearts of the Pharisees. Hypocrisy is simply when we present an external picture to the world about who we are and, and, and what we believe that doesn't actually reflect who we truly are in our hearts. Hypocrisy is simply presenting an external picture to the world that is not a true reflection of who we actually are in our hearts. Uh, last weekend, we encouraged our church together as a, a church family to, to fast and pray together. Uh, that was on Saturday the 13th. And 
So our family had um, gotten together, and we had talked about some things we were going to do. There, we have some things we always do on Saturday, and we said, you know, on this Saturday, we're going we're gonna to pull back, and we're not going to do some of those things that we normally do. And part of my plan is that I was not going to eat that day. And uh, as the day went on, we got close to dinner time, and I started kind of talking to Allie about it, and then I decided to go ahead and eat dinner uh, on, on that Saturday night. And so we, you know, we, we turned the stove on, we turned the, the oven on, and we started cooking some food, and um, oh man, like it, the smells were just filling, you know, when you haven't eaten in a little while, the smells were filling the house, and it was just getting all exciting. And then all of a sudden, I got a text from my mom saying that she was about to pop over and drop something by. And I kid you not, the first thing that came out of my mouth, as soon as I saw the text, I looked up at Allie and I said, oh no, my mom's going to know that we ate dinner. God knew that I was eating dinner, but for some reason, it mattered more to me that, that my mom was going to know that I ate dinner. And no offense, but why does it matter what she thinks about what I eat and when I eat it and my religious and spiritual life? You know, why do we do that? Why do we try to present some picture to the world that isn't actually the reality of what's going on in our hearts. I, I think I see at least two reasons. I think part of the problem is this, that the value that we place on God and on His opinion is too low. And so we might give God our lips, we might give Him our hands, but we don't actually fully give Him our hearts. But the other problem is this, that the value that we place on other people and their opinions is too high. And so rather than living a life of full transparency and full openness before God, we run around constantly trying to put, present some picture to the outside world because their opinions, for whatever reason, matter more to us than God's opinion. Jesus tells us that this is a worship problem. And so Jesus continues with a specific example in verses 19 through 13. This might sound a little bit weird to us, but if we just quickly kind of boil it down to the principle, I think, I think we'll be able to see what's going on. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. I think sometimes we don't even realize it, but we actually use God as a way to keep separation and distance from God. That's what was going on here. Jesus is pressing on one specific example. He's talking to them about obeying the command to, to love and honor your parents. But what Jesus is exposing is that they had actually found a way to disobey the commandment of God and appear godly while doing it. They were using God as an excuse 
to keep distance and separation from God. And you and I do the same things. We actually get really good at making our distance and our separation from God look moral and shiny and upright. You know, we call it just being responsible and taking care of our kids and working hard. And we create separation from God. And it looks so good, but it's rotten on the inside. So Jesus has exposed us in our hypocrisy, but I hate to tell you that the uh, bottom rock ultimate diagnosis today is actually not hypocrisy. Uh, The diagnosis is going to go much deeper for us. And so second, depravity. Jesus diagnoses our real sickness. Depravity. Jesus diagnoses our real sickness. So Jesus takes this opportunity to clearly and bluntly teach why external self-help cannot ever fix the real problem in our lives. Let's read verses 14 to 20. And he called the people to him again and said to him, said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. The reason that we can't fix our problems by cleaning ourselves up or just by faking it on the outside or even by trying really hard to get self-disciplined or to, to change, our, change our habits is because what's wrong with us doesn't actually come outside into us. What's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world actually comes from within us. The real problem in the world is not the world. The real problem in the world is me. It's that my heart is sinful, that my heart is wicked. And the the evil things that come out of our lives actually come from us, not from outside in. This is the Christian doctrine of sin. Christians don't believe that people are basically good. Christians don't believe that people are born in sort of a neutral atmosphere where we get to choose between right and wrong. Christians don't even believe the idea that nobody's perfect. Christians believe that our very hearts, the very core of our beings, are totally depraved, that we are wrecked, that all of our thoughts and all of our actions and all of our decisions, because our hearts are sinful, those things are polluted with sin and selfishness. Every thought, every action, every decision, totally polluted and consumed with sinfulness and selfishness. That is the Christian perspective. The Christian declaration is that the main problem in the world is not our environment. It is not our education. It is not our family upbringing that the main problem in the world lives inside of us. 
when you go to a doctor and they diagnose you, um, they are working off of some reference point, right? They talk to you in this kind of language. They say like, you know, your levels are too high, whatever that means, or your cholesterol is too low. In reference to what? What are you too high or too low in reference to what? In reference to what's healthy. But I think that one of our biggest problems in the world is that we assess our lives with the wrong reference point. We assess our lives in reference to our neighbor. We assess our lives in reference to what we see on social media. We assess our lives in reference to what's popular in in the culture at that time. And guess what, guys? We even assess our lives sometimes in reference to what our parents taught us, just like these Pharisees. And Jesus is teaching us that if, if you start with the wrong reference point, you won't understand what's actually wrong. The reference point that we actually have to assess ourselves by is who God made us to be. Who were the first man and woman? What kind of state were they in? What was their relationship to God? They were in right relationship to God. They had communion with God. They had fellowship with God. They loved God, and God loved them. And so whatever solution we come up with has to go all the way down to that level. It has to go all the way down to the level that it fixes our relationship to God, that it mends whatever has been broken between us and between God. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus couldn't be any clearer, and we need to look at this list. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So let's just go one by one. Thoughts. Our minds go to evil places. Sex. We pervert the good gift of God. Theft. We take what does not belong to us. Murder. We put our lives and our significance and our desires over the value of another human life. Adultery. We break our promises to our spouses. Coveting. We always want more. Wickedness. We do things that we know are morally wrong. Deceit. We lie. Sensuality, we are a slave to the cravings of our bodies. Envy, we desire everyone else's lot in life. Slander, we kill other people's reputation. Pride, we exalt ourselves. Foolishness, we live life our way. And why do we do all these things? Because our hearts are corrupt. And if our hearts are corrupt then it corrupts our minds, it corrupts our wills, it corrupts our desires. And when you have a mind and you have a will and you have desires that are corrupt, it is inevitable that your actions will be corrupt. I want you to imagine that tomorrow you had a doctor's appointment lined up. Maybe you've been sniffling and and coughing a little bit. You want to go in and and, uh, get a little something to knock it out. And so you go in, and the doctor starts to check on you a little bit. He starts to do the exam. And uh, think about how weird this would be if when you said, you know, hey, doc, you know, what do you think's wrong with me? He took a second, and and he looked back, and he said, well, my assessment is that you are dead. You'd probably laugh. 
and you say, okay, no, but really, like, what do you really think is wrong with me? And if he, with all serious, looked you right in the face, and he said, my honest professional opinion is that you are dead. Guys, that is what Jesus is saying to us this morning. We come in with our little problems. We come in with what we feel like are, you know, no big deal. We just need a, we just need a nudge in the right direction. We just need a little pick-me-up. And Jesus says, no, no, no. My diagnosis is that you are dead to God. And that when you, as a human being, made by God, made to live with Him and to know Him and to love Him, when you are dead to God, it wrecks every area of your life. Nothing in your life will be the way God intended if we are dead to God. And that is the serious and real diagnosis. So Jesus, the the great physician, he's taken us down to the root. He's given us a revealing diagnosis. And it's at this point that, that many people get so close to being healed. Get so close to having their problems fixed. But we have to be really careful. Because when we hear this diagnosis, when we hear how serious this is, there are two mistakes that most of us to end up making that keep us from actually getting healed. One mistake is to hear this diagnosis and then to drop our heads and say, I knew I was a lost cause, and to just walk away. The other mistake we can make is to hear this diagnosis, to hear how desperately wicked and wrong and sinful our hearts are, and to think, well, I just need to try harder. I just need to give more effort. And to keep us from making those two mistakes, Mark takes us to our third point, humility. Jesus takes our case for free. Humility, Jesus takes our case for free. So as we've seen Jesus do time and time again, he's constantly moving from place to place to place. And he goes to this other place where we'll pick up in verse 24 through 26. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So here we are, we've met another desperate woman. Another desperate person who, who needs Jesus. Another person who, who would be totally hopeless, but yet has found a little bit of hope because she heard about this man. She heard about the man, Jesus Christ. And she comes, I mean, this is her daughter. Think about it. And she flings herself down at the feet of Jesus, and she begins to beg him to help. She begins to beg Jesus to, to intervene And how Jesus responds is not how we would expect. Jesus is about to shock us. I think that it's stories like these in our Bible that actually prove to us that the Bible is not a made-up story. Because if if someone was writing a story and they were trying to get us to, to love a character, what we're about to hear come out of the mouth of Jesus would not have made it into the script. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. 
For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus, the one that we've seen respond time and time again with full loving compassion, responds to this woman with this interesting parable. Um, He's seemingly trying to just show her that he came first for the Jews, first for his people, and that the Gentiles, the people that weren't Jews, that, that he would get to them eventually, but they needed to wait their turn. But what we can't overlook is that in explaining this parable to this woman, Jesus calls her a dog. So here's a little parenthetical thought. Jesus is not our cheerleader. Jesus is not the motivational quote that's sitting on our fridge. Jesus is not the emotional support dog that we carry around with us to make us feel better. Jesus is not the hype song that we listen to on the way to work to to get us ready for the hard day. If nothing else, I think this text teaches us that the way that we look at Jesus and many times the way that we treat Jesus falls strikingly short of who he really is. So we might expect this woman to respond in one of two ways. After hearing Jesus say this, we might expect her to to hang her head, to walk away and, and say to herself, you know what, I knew it was true. I knew that no one, not even Jesus, could love me. Or we might expect for her to assert herself and to respond to Jesus, to throw down her resume and to say, no, Jesus, you're supposed to help me. Look, I've done this and I've done that. I've done this. You've got to help me. Look, I'm so worthy. But by the grace of God, that is not what she does. Look at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What? Are you kidding me? Jesus just called this woman a dog? And in response, she calls him Lord. She acknowledges herself to be a dog. And she casts herself fully and completely upon what she knows to be the ultimate gracious character of Jesus. It's almost like this woman is saying, Yes, Jesus. I know that I don't deserve for you to help me. I know that I don't deserve for you to heal me, but I also know this, that you are a gracious God. And that I can know, Jesus, I can know that you will help me, not because I deserve to be helped, but because I know that you are just that good. I know that you are gracious. And so even though I'm a Gentile, even though I'm separated Even though I'm not part of your people, I know you'll help me because your heart is full of grace. And that's why Jesus responds in verse 29 and 30. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. This is real grace. That is a picture of real Christianity. Jesus freely giving us what we do not deserve. And it's grace, it's this 
grace that just for like just like this woman, it humbles us to be able to honestly acknowledge who we are. We're dogs. We're separated. We're sinful. But at the same time, to trust Jesus for who he is. So Jesus has exposed us. He's diagnosed us. And he's revealed his gracious heart to us. But finally, we actually need to deal with the the real remedy. And so finally, remedy, Jesus heals us with himself. Jesus heals us with himself. So after returning from the northern Gentile country on his way back to this hotbed of his ministry, Jesus performs a healing miracle. Let's pick up in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be open." And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. As we've worked through this book of Mark, uh, we've seen Jesus encounter lots of different brokenness. Brokenness in nature, brokenness in health, brokenness in spiritual life. Uh, In one sense, this deaf man is no new thing for Jesus that we see here in Mark chapter 7. Jesus has healed any and all, but I think what's unique about this healing in Mark chapter 7 is not necessarily what Jesus does, but it's how Jesus goes about healing this man. And so I think we learn four things from how Jesus chose to heal this man. First, Jesus heals each of us individually. Notice that while Jesus up to this point in Mark has healed any and all different kinds of maladies, that Jesus isn't constrained to healing in one type of way. And I think what's most important about that is that we learn that when Jesus heals, he does not heal in mass quantities. Jesus does not save as a blanket statement. Jesus comes into our individual lives and he saves us and he heals us and he meets our specific needs in specific ways. Secondly, Jesus works in tandem with heaven. Uh, Notice also that just like when Jesus fed the thousands, he takes time to look up to heaven. Remember, this man couldn't hear. And so he may not have even known who Jesus was. He definitely couldn't hear Jesus talk to him, couldn't hear Jesus pray, couldn't hear Jesus bless him. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to look up to heaven, to, to show this man That where he's getting his healing power from is from heaven itself. That Jesus is a man who came from heaven and who's operating in tandem with heaven. Third, Jesus takes our sickness upon himself. I think this was the most intriguing uh, thing that I saw in the text as I was working through it this week. Up to this point, there's been no hint that healing anyone has been any trouble for Jesus. Right? It's not like he's like a person in the gym working out, going around huffing and puffing and trying to heal all these people. He, he's just very calmly, m- many times either touching or just speaking a word, and immediately there's healing. And yet here in Mark chapter 7, we see this interesting fact that it says that before Jesus healed him, it says he sighed, 
which in, that, that same word in many other places in our uh, English translation is translated groaned. Jesus groaned. He let out a groan. So why did he do that? It wasn't the power to perform the miracle that led Jesus to sigh, that led Jesus to groan. It was the fact that Jesus was feeling the weight of our brokenness. And as the weight of our brokenness came crashing down upon Jesus, this is what he knew. He knew that ultimately the only way that he would be able to heal us and redeem us and save us was that he himself was going to have to go to the cross and take on our infirmities, take on our sin, take on our guilt, and bear it in his own body on the tree. That whatever's broken in the world, if it was going to be fixed, it had to fall upon Jesus. And so he groaned, he sighed. But then fourthly, Jesus gives us himself as the remedy. We see that Jesus gives us himself as the remedy. We have to ask, how does the healing power of Jesus actually get down into our lives? How does what Jesus has done, how does who Jesus is actually affect you and me? I think the answer is found in this healing of the deaf and mute man. Jesus literally put himself inside of this man. Jesus took his fingers and he put his fingers into the man's ears. And Jesus, maybe even more striking, took his own spit and put it on to the tongue of the man who could not speak. The way that Jesus healed this man was that he literally used himself as a medicine to heal this man. And that's exactly the same way that Jesus heals and saves you and I. I think the key to understanding how it is that Jesus heals us is found in verse 37, the last verse of the chapter. It says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus Christ has done all things well. And if our broken and sick and dead nature is going to be brought back to life, it's only going to be brought back to life through someone who would come and raise our nature back up, to heal our nature, to redeem our nature. And that is who Jesus is, the man who has done all things well. I want you to turn now to Titus chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. And I want you to see one snapshot of both God's diagnosis and the remedy for, through Jesus in one place in the Scriptures. Titus, towards, over towards the end of your Bible, chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Listen to how the diagnosis is as clear as day and the remedy is as hopeful as ever. This is what it says. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young disciple Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ, the one who does all things well, the way he heals us is he comes bursting into our hearts through the power of his Spirit. And it's like a resurrection. And when we were dead to God, when we had no communion with God, no fellowship with God, Jesus implants a new principle of life into us, and now we're alive to God. And when we come alive to God, He begins to slowly transform us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Education, emotional support, political reform, self-discipline, those things all have their place. But none of them are Christianity. None of them actually gets down to the root of the problem. But if by God's grace, he opens up our eyes to the reality of our depravity, the real diagnosis of our sin, then to the praise of his glory, Jesus will come in and he'll heal us and he'll save us and he'll make us new. And when Jesus comes into your heart, when Jesus comes into your life, the scripture says that you become a new creation. And that's why here at Palmetto Shores Church, we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it, it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. First for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Guys, let's not settle for super, superficial treatment. Let's not settle for outside-in self-helpism. Let's be willing to take an honest look at the depth of of our sin, the depth of our depravity, so that the true and real gospel of Jesus Christ can come in and raise us from death to life. Hey, we've heard the word, and now I'm so excited this morning that we're going to get to see the word. We're going to get to see a picture of it. We're actually going to get to see a picture of what it means for our old dead depravity to be plunged down into the depths of the grave with Jesus and the new man to be raised to life with Jesus. So we're going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we're going to get to see an awesome picture. God, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you for the salvation that comes in the name and only in the name of Jesus Christ. God, we're sorry. We're sorry for our foolish attempts to try to fix ourselves from the outside in. We're so sorry that we've been like these Pharisees, thinking that we could just play lip service, that we could just put on a a good outside appearance for you, even though we know our hearts are empty, we know our hearts are dead. Help us, Lord, to live whole, healed lives in the power and from the mercy of Jesus. We worship you now, we praise you, and it's in his name that we worship. Amen. Today we have one of the greatest privileges in in the Christian church experience, and I know that um, many times uh, we baptize people that have been around a while. Corey's a brand new friend, a brand new friend of ours. I'd like to ask Donna and uh, Corey, I'd like to ask your mom when, when, when Donna comes by for your mom and Donna and Mike to come up and stand here. Two quick stories. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, Corey, there's a story where uh, Isaiah's best friend died. 
King Uzziah died. And in that experience of his grief, and that experience of the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. And his grief drew him to God. And he became one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament history. And I know that there's a sadness in your heart uh, back in November when your dad passed away. And I think God got your attention whenever your dad passed away. And uh, you stand here today as a testimony to the power of God working in your life. And I'm glad your mom is here with you today to stand with you during, during this moment. Also, church, I want you to know that in the book of Acts, Philip was in uh, the process of, of being a part of a great revival in Jerusalem. And God's Spirit called him away from that great revival to go to the desert, to Gaza. And on the road to Gaza, there was one man that God wanted Philip to interpret the gospel to. And that, that, uh, that Ethiopian ruler became a believer and went on to lead a whole section of the world to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've asked Donna and Mike to come up because uh, Corey wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Donna. Uh, Corey had to get a new pair of glasses. And at her work, Donna asked Corey about his faith. Church, that's what, that's what we're all about. We're about using the everyday experiences we have and because of that invitation, Corey came last week and again heard the gospel. Corey, I need to ask you, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you confessed that you are a sinner? I'm a sinner, yes. Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? I do. Then today it's my privilege, brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask Katie to come join me. Katie Dabbs. Um, Katie has been. Yeah. I want to ask uh, Katie's family and uh, friends that have invested in Katie to come up and join us up here on the stage right now, if you would please. And while they're coming, let me just say a word um, about Katie. I know um, Katie's been around. I've known you most of your life, Katie. Um, uh, Katie grew up with two brothers, and uh, the two brothers that she grew up with. Uh, were in the athletic kind of circles that, that my kids uh, were involved in. And so I've watched Katie for a long time. And when we first started Palmetto Shores Church, uh, Katie was hanging around with our youth group. Uh, I'd like to ask one more person, Rich White. Rich, will you just stand up and then sit back down? I know you don't want to do that, but uh, just stand up and I'll sit back down. Okay, this is Rich White. Rich and Chuck Gunnan uh, showed up every morning for about three years and cooked breakfast for our middle school. And Katie was a part of that middle school group uh, where she was first introduced to the gospel uh, on a regular basis. And like I said, Katie's been around a while and this church has invested in her. Uh, students uh, in her uh, peer group have invested in her. It's a great picture 
of what the church and what uh, student ministry uh, ought to be like in our culture today. Katie, this um, is an opportunity for you publicly to profess something that's already happened in your heart. This, this water doesn't save you. There's no saving power in baptism water. Baptism is a picture. It's a picture of the fact that you have committed your life to Christ and you want to live the rest of your life for Him. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, have you come to the point in your life where you have admitted that you are a sinner? Yes, I have. Okay, and so uh, the gospel begins with God, and God is perfect, and He cannot exist where sin exists. And so our sin separates us from God. But admitting that you're a sinner is the first step in coming to faith. Uh, then, Katie, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you come to the point in your life where you've trusted and believed in Jesus? Yes, I have. Then, Katie, what a wonderful story because the picture says when you commit your life to Christ, then you're saved. You're born again like we've talked about in the message this morning. And you've come to that point and now you want to show with your action what you've committed to in your heart and when we take you down under the water that's a picture of the burial of Christ and then we bring you back up out of the water that's a picture of the resurrection of Christ buried to your old self and then raised to walk in the newness of life and so right now Katie I'm going to do that so hang on just a second let me turn this off based on the profession that you've made of your faith in Christ, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.